Welcome back to the Northeast Newscast. On this week's episode, Eliana Hale interviews Kate Morris, Northeast resident and author for the Northeast News. Thanks for tuning in. Um, I'm Catherine Browder Morris. People in the Northeast know me as Kate Morris, um, married to Randall. And we've lived in the Northeast since, I think, 81. We lived on Hardesty and now on Gladstone. So we've been here a long time. And are, and are very, feel you know, the longer you stay in the Northeast, the more devoted you become to the area because there it has history. Um, and there's a certain solidarity of people here because we're aware of how neglected the neighborhood has been at various times in its history. Maybe not so much now, but... It does get to be neglected, and and you know you feel sort of defensive against a certain amount of gentrification, that sort of thing that happens. But we have wonderful neighbors. For example, my husband is recovering from some major surgeries that require lots of rehab, so he can walk again. Frankly, and neighbors have helped out every step along the way with a walking program and other things. And so, I mean. You could not ask for a more congenial, uh, supportive environment that we have found in the Northeast. Otherwise, I, for a long time, I taught at the Don Bosco Center, which had various locations in the Northeast. I was a teacher of English as a second language. We had The Don Bosco Center was, at that time, and that's way back in the 90s and, and maybe 80s as well, was a designated State Department, State Department site for refugee resettlement. And so I was involved in that program and ceased doing that and did some through UMKC, teaching actually at Penn Valley. And these were university students who were studying ESL. Leaving that after a while, I, I got a master's actually from UMKC in their professional writing program, which predates their MFA program. And, but eventually taught as an adjunct in that MFA program for a few years, taught writing, fiction writing. Um, and I have been writing since, gosh, I think I started writing when I lived in Japan, turned to writing late in my life, well, late, 30. <laughs> I guess that's late. You know, people have started when they're in college. But I was one of that generation of women that thought, oh, I don't have anything to say. And so you discover you do have plenty to say, especially if you live overseas and then come home. Um, and so that sort of brings me up to date. I have several collections. I'm a short-form writer mostly, short stories, novellas, plays. Although I do have a novel, my first novel to be published, not the first to be written, but it's coming out at the end of this year uh, from a different publishing house. So I will be promoting that starting in later in the year. That is very exciting. It is exciting. Yes. It is exciting. I mean, usually I've, you know, it's like I have one book a decade. And now as I get older and I'm, I feel like, oh, I'm at the end of my career and I'm having two virtually in one year. I mean, that's feels, it feels odd and um, funny. I, I'm finding it amusing <laughs> that here I am on the cusp of elderly and everything. And so I'm having two in one year. So that's okay. I'm not complaining. <laughs> but the current book I think that uh, we want to talk about is the one that is just out with a December 22 publication date or copyright date. It has to do with an experience in 2011. Japan, where I once lived, had a really serious earthquake, tsunami, 
nuclear meltdown event, and I'm sure some people may remember it. I had a very good friend, uh, Makoto, and his wife, Masai Okamoto. I've known Makoto since I was 14. We were pen pals. His mother and my mother shared a mutual friend, and they, my parents never met his mother, but the mutual friend got us in touch because Makoto wanted to practice his English, and he ended up being a professor of linguistics at a university in the Tokyo area, although he was from the south. He was from Kyushu. And, but I, I met him finally in, I think, was it the 70s? Yeah. I met him finally. After all these years that we were pen pals, I met him as a young adult as I was coming for the first time with my, I, with my ex-husband. We were going to Taiwan, and then that's where I met him and his wife, and we stayed with them. Uh, and then again, when I lived in Japan again for an extended period in the in the early part of the 70s, 73 to 75. But this, I returned in 2016 to see the area that was affected because Makoto had shared some amazing stories. He and his wife decided that all Japanese should be aware of what had happened in the Northeast, because the Northeast is kind of a rugged area with its own history and lots of ghost stories and fairy tales. It's kind of the Appalachia of Japan, and it's also the butt of lots of jokes among the Japanese. Mm -hmm. So he went, he had, they have college friends all the way up and down that Northeast coast. So they arranged to visit their friends and see what was going on. And it was incredible because although much of the devastation was cleaned up, it, it's just a wasteland. It was just denuded, flat, and they were beginning to build seawalls and railways. No railway stood along there. And uh, remember, Japan is one of the great rail countries, and there's, there was nothing. So they drove and stopped along the way. Later, I think that year... They, I believe they went attended a conference in Tokyo that was also attended by people from Alaska and Oregon and Washington State. It was about the microplastics and the debris that was drifting off the tsunami that had been washed out to sea and was drifting toward the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. And it did. It landed there a year, a year and a half later, lots of stuff. So this was a conference, a sort of a scientific conference about what to do with all the microplastics, the pollution, the, the debris island that was making its way. And so my friend made, my friend Makoto is just one of these people with a gift for friendship. So he made friends with a bunch of ladies that were there that were from Oregon. So they invited him. Actually, now that I think of it, the conference preceded Makoto and Masai's trip down the coast, they suggested he uh, visit and report to them. He had volunteered to come and help them clean up their beautiful beaches <laughs> along there. He says, it's our garbage. We should all be helping them clean it up, At which I think, oh, my, that is very Japanese to take <laughs> that kind of responsibility. After the conference, Makoto and Masai took the trip and then Makoto traveled with a young man who spoke no English but was a photographer and had fabulous pictures to share of the devastation. And so this young man presented his sort of PowerPoint while Makoto discussed things. 
when it was all over, the, uh, he met this wild-looking beachcomber. Makoto sent me a picture of this guy. And he presented Makoto with something that had washed up on the beach. It was a fishing float from longline fishing, made of balsa, very light. But the guy thought Koto would be interested in this because there was writing on it, and he didn't know what this writing was. Well, the writing turned out to be uh, the name of the ship and from which this longline fishing, this little float came attached, and the name of the town. And so, long story short, when he returned home, Makoto was able to track down the fisherman who, who had lost everything. He had lost all the other floats. He had lost the, the entire fish. He lost his house, a fishing ship. Uh, by that, he lost his ship, which was actually his father's. Everything attached to the, to the shipping, uh, to the fishing ship, plus his home. <laughs> that whole area was just devastated. Um, but he, his family, were safe because they managed to make it to high ground. Um, so this is like two years after the devastation, and so my friend was able to track down Suzuki-san and return this fishing float, and the guy says this is the only thing remaining of what we own. This is it. And I thought, as a writer, my mind just clicked, and it was just, oh my... OMG, it's, there's a story here. Well, and then so that became the beginning. And I began, he was telling me these stories, and I began reading books that were available that people had published, including a wonderful travel memoir, very personal travel memoir by Gretel Ehrlich, who is one of the great um, travel writers and personal uh, essay writers we have in this country, and then lots of news articles. So I went with a friend. We were able to stay with Makoto. We traveled down the coast, but I began researching. There's, there are other books, and there is an endless amount of online news articles about the event, and it became an obsession. It just, uh, it, it just took over my life, um, and so because I knew I would be I didn't know. Let me start. I didn't know whether I'd be writing fiction or nonfiction. I said, well, maybe it'll be both. Maybe it'll be a bit of both. <laughs> and then I started writing stories one at a time, which suggested by my trips, by my conversations with people. I should add that my Japanese is pretty lousy. So I um, bought tapes. And for four months before my friend and I traveled to Japan in 2016, I just plugged myself into those tapes every day. And it was very helpful. At least I could carry on the most rudimentary conversation, ask the most rudimentary questions. You know, how many children do you have? And I recorded their conversations and Makoto translated them later for me. But their personal stories I thought should be told by themselves. So I was working on two things at once, nonfiction, a kind of travel memoir in which I could tell their stories, and then the stories. Uh, well, I'm not a very good memoir writer. I really don't like writing about myself. I m much prefer invention. Th this is where I'm comfortable. And so I was way outside my comfort zone with the 
the nonfiction piece, but it's still there. I can still return to it. But it's obvious that the fiction was taking over my life, that this was more interesting to me. Um, and so there are, I'm trying to think now, I can't <laughs> count, is it nine, eight, nine stories? Uh, one of them is a novella, and the novella at the end called Adrift is really, it's a combination of fiction and nonfiction between the made-up story, which is all the made-up story is based on facts, but in between them are sections that are really drawn from news articles I read um, to supplement, to get this full picture of what it's like for a garbage island the size of Texas to be drifting across the Pacific and bits of it ending up in Alaska, Washington State, Oregon State, Hawaii. And all of these sort of come into play in the, in the story itself. But this is the one, this is the story where I'm able to tell Makoto's story about the little drift. Um, and of course, I've fictionalized he and his wife. <laughs> They're now a young couple, and she's a photographer, which she, which she isn't really, you know, I've just fictionalized their experience. Um, it just seems that you don't want to to invade people's privacy, so so you fictionalize, you change. But it's foundationally that's the story that was the inspiration for all the others, and the other stories run the gamut. <laughs> One story takes place in this country, and it was a story published in New Letters magazine in 2019. It's a story about the Joplin tornado, which killed 164 people, approximately. That happened just a few months, three, two and a half, three months after the Great East Japan disaster. I and remember so, that. Yes. I, the Joplin disaster. Do you remember the, that? Is ju- it was extraordinary. I um, lived in Oklahoma for a very long time, and so the more Oklahoma that happened in 2011 as well, or it might have been 2010, had near as much as the same fatality and disaster in Oklahoma. And so I remember when the Joplin happened, because I was just like, I remember my experience living through the Moore one, and just, um, I think I was in elementary school at the time, and I just remember, like, asking my mom about it, being like, oh, was that, like, what we went through? And I just, I remember the Joplin disaster pretty well. I bet you did. I forgot about the Moore tornado. Yes, I was actually um, driving to Oklahoma for my grandfather's funeral, and it was the day before we were driving in, and we literally drove in when we saw, like, the wall cloud, and, like, we were checking into our hotel, and we were like, okay, it's not looking good. We got to go, and my uncle lived, like, a couple blocks from the hotel, and he had a cellar, and so we just drove over there. We're like, hey, we're in town. We need your cellar, and as soon as we got in the cellar was when the tornado hit, and it actually missed my uncle's house by a block, and the next block was completely Flattened, I believe it. And I remember walking around with my parents after because we were we had no car, we couldn't really leave the neighborhood, and so we were just walking. And that was when like a bunch of churches had like come together to like hand out food. And but yes, I was I yeah, that was a pivotal part of my childhood. And so when the Joplin situation happened, I was just like, oh, I I relate to that. And I just remember asking my mom all types of questions about it. Ah, imagine this. Uh, That's incredible. (laughs) And notice. Those experiences 
even though you weren't actually in it, you mm. were close enough to it, yes. they're traumatic. They're traumas. People remember traumas. It's a hard time, a long time to get over a trauma. Yes. And so the the Joplin story is made up, except for the event, is yeah. not made up. And the teller of the Joplin story remembers this guy, and it's after the tornado. Yeah. It's several years after the tornado. But It's time to take a break to thank our sponsors. Shemekas Online Market in Delhi, offering catering and nationwide shipping at shemekasonline.com. Find their new deli at 16th and Swift in North Kansas City. Shemekas, where customers become friends and friends become family. From classics to campers, hot rods to hoopties, Seaberg Muffler, your exhaust headquarters since 1974. Armor Road in Burlington in North Kansas City, Missouri. And now back to the newscast. I don't know if you've ever heard of the wind phone. Uh, Sounds Casino Denois. It is. They, they the NPR had stories about it. You could see other things. You can see on YouTube an NHK uh, story. A guy in in the area in Iwate Prefecture, the area that was affected by the tsunami, had set up a wind phone to talk to his deceased cousin. It's a phone booth in the middle of a garden that's not attached to anything, but it has a phone in it so you can pick it up and talk to your deceased relatives. And so your your voice is not carried by the electrical wires, <laughs> telephone wires. It's carried by the wind. And there's a great, maybe in Japan, a greater sense of connection with the dead because there's a Buddhist element that the dead are waiting for to make sure before they move on out from the bardo up to their lives. They're waiting to be reassured that everything is all right with you, the living. And so I, I think it works something like this. But this woman wants to have a wind phone, so she builds one in her Joplin backyard. So that's what it boils down to. So you can talk to the dead because in this story, she has lost significant person. That's one. That's that's taking place in this country. But there are other Mar Americans in these stories, mostly. Uh, both. There are both Americans and Japanese, Americans who are affected because they are in um, Japan or people who have lost friends and acquaintances. One story is about a couple coming back to pay homage to the family of a young girl who was lost in the tsunami who used to be their AFS exchange student. And they're, and they're very concerned about what happened to her. They, don't, they know she's died, but they don't know how or why. Hmm. So these stories are all, in some way or other, they're related to the event. And it was, it's, when you write a story, you're learning something. You don't have a, necessarily have any answers. For me, the, there are two questions you ask before you write a story. It's, what if? <laughs> And then in, in reply to the voice in your head that tells you, oh, you can't do that, the answer is, well, why not? So what if and why not are the two questions you will use to get you through the story. And, of course, I had to do every story represented a lot of research as well and memories of what I remembered when I was traveling with my friend along uh, the northeast coast. And this is a beautiful coast. They have... Some national treasures, the, the one, the Kitayama Zuki, uh, I'm not saying it correctly, 
um, the cliffs in that northeast area are just magnificent. And interesting sculptures of rock out just off the coast that have been shaped by waves, circular ones and humped back ones with foliage growing on them. It's just a beautiful area. Uh, but as I said, it's sort of treated as the Ozarks of Japan. Yeah. So, um, so that's what it's come down to. And so the stories, I put the stories together, and then, you, and then as a writer, you begin to shop them around. <clears throat> you send them out. Um, I almost, you know, some people will contact a, an agent or attempt to get an agent, but agents are not interested in short stories, believe it or not. Unless you're a famous person. If you're John Updike, you can, of course, get your stories published. <laughs> but if you're not John Updike or somebody else or Philip Roth or Alice Monroe, you're going to have a hard time getting your stories attracting the New York lit biz. <laughs> so there are lots of independent publishers, and my career has been based on independent publishers, and they're wonderful people, just like independent bookstores are wonderful people. So... I sent it to a competition, and um, Willow Springs Books is in Eastern Washington State University, and they have been sponsoring Willow's, the Spokane Prize for short fiction. They've been sponsoring that for years. And so they awarded me that prize, which is a, just made me feel very good. It especially made me feel very good that I would have something, it would get published, and I could send copies to my friends in Japan. That, mm. that to me... They are the ones that suffered so much, and my friend Makoto and his wife know this book is coming down the pike. And I've even sent them magazines in which individual stories had been published, because that's another thing. Um, before you generally publish a collection of stories, individual stories, a few of them should at least be published in small magazines. And so that's what happened, and that, um, that took place, I'm trying to think, was it I submitted in t the, the, the stories in 2021 and they were they were announced the award in early 2022 and then put it together. And the interesting thing is this press is run by students. It, it has faculty advisors, of course, but it's their MFA program uses the the talents and it's a teaching tool really for students who want to be in publishing. And they, some of them are hired. The editor is, is usually hired, and the rest are probably interns in the MFA program. So interesting, you know. We do that a little bit here, I think, uh, with New Letters magazine. A lot of the student, students, are, are grad students, are interns writing, working in the production of the magazine. It's a, uh, it's, it's a fabulous way to learn the trade, learn mm -hmm. the business. And so that's where we are now. So I just heard recently, um, last week, that finally the books are out from the printer. Good. So I can actually <laughs> see a copy. It will eventually be in my hand. And we did have a campaign in January, <clears throat> a pre-order campaign. And any number of friends were kind enough to pre-order a copy of the book. So hopefully they will get there soon. Um, but that's just the journey of the book. Yeah. So I would say st the the book started its existence in 2016, and here it is, 2023. Uh, it was done in 2021. So that's how long it takes. Um, and that, 
And that, for me, but is actually pretty speedy. It is not unusual. For, well, my track record has been a book a decade, so you can get <laughs> But, of course, we're doing other things. We're working, right? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> we're teaching. We're whatever, doing whatever things you do. It takes time. It takes it a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It does that. I first want to just say that that's an incredible story. It's very just the whole lead up to everything it's so powerful and i'm so excited to actually be able to read the collection and well I'm, i'll make sure you I'm get excited. a copy so i kind of want to go back a little bit to what we were talking about originally um with just like your journey of writing itself oh. so i know you mentioned that you started writing when you were 30 correct? almost 30 almost yeah. 30 um so what drives you to write what kind of started the journey of hey i'm a writer this is what i want to do well, I was living in Japan at the time, and I think a couple of things. I thought, well, this is the first time I've had extended periods of time in which I wasn't teaching or driving to teach. I had time. Yes, I was working in Japan, but I also had time. I didn't have distractions. I wasn't doing X or Y or getting together with friends. Um, I, I was teaching kids and teaching at a women's college, but then there was these gaps uh, of days in which my time was not accounted for. And this was wonderful. And I had always been hesitant. I'd always wanted to write, but thought, oh, my God, I don't have anything particular original to say. Well, that's, you know, that's kind of an excuse not to write, <laughs> I think, uh, maybe. So I began, and, of course, like most people, I wrote, I wrote a series of stories that were perfectly dreadful, you know, the early, the early stories. But you're learning. You're learning. And you learn from other writers. Um, I didn't have the privilege at that time of going to a workshop or anything. But I, be, I fell in love with the, with the work of Catherine Mansfield, the New Zealand writer, who was writing at the turn of the 20th century, uh, the 19th and the 20th. And I didn't know you could write stories like that. She was so original. And I wrote... Read other people. I mean, Joyce Carol Oates had some wonderful stories out. There were other writers who had wonderful stories that I read. Um, and so there was a lot. I, I think I was spending a lot of time imitating Catherine Mansfield. <laughs> and, you know, imitation is okay. Yeah. Because sooner or later you won't imitate. You'll just, you'll just do your thing. You'll, yes. sound, you'll find your voice. Uh, and I'm not sure I can tell you what that means. I think it just means you are... Finding the things, the themes that are concerning you, that interest you, that you're yes. going to write about. Yes. And your style will evolve, and my style is not complicated. Um, admire simplicity, above all else, clarity. That doesn't mean I don't read writers who have wonderful, rich, thick writing styles. Um, but, but that's, you know, we all have our own style. Mm -hmm. um, but so I, I was writing in Japan, and then I came home and had to work. And then we uh, moved to Kansas City, and I began to write some more. So it was all just sitting down and painfully learning, putting together stories as they came to me. And it was just, I wasn't reading about how to write either. I didn't have any manuals. I just think I was copying people that interested me. Yeah. Um, and we, there is a word for that, you know, your unmet mentors. Yes. Like Chekhov, you know. There's 
a really good book called Steal Like an Artist, and it's about that idea that as artists, as writers, as musicians, that we do steal from other oh, people, do. and we take that unmet mentorship and or whatever we are doing within our work, and um, that's always stuck with me, so I cool. love that you mentioned that, because I the novel itself just talks about that you have to steal like an artist to find that voice, to like find... <laughs> well, I, um, I kind of like that. Yeah. <laughs> because I think you do. You're, you're, you know, you always read little books, self-help or other books, other people's journeys, and they're always carrying around the pad of paper. Yes. Annie Lamont with her little pencil and pad <laughs> of paper in her back pocket. You know, so you're jotting things down. Anything you see or comments people make, this to me is really, if you just go around listening to the comments people make it's just eye-opening and you can steal them it sticks <laughs> with you no as a journalistic writer i in these interviews when i get to talk to people and hear their stories just sometimes little quotes that people give it sticks with me and so that is a very true thing that happens <laughs> i was putting together some japan stories and i think this was in the 80s and had a few published most of them Japan stories, and then finally submitted to a competition and didn't win, but they were kind enough to tell me, made some suggestions, and asked, suggested that I reconceive some things and rework it and resubmit, mm -hmm. and I did. Uh, it did not win the second competition, but they contacted me and said, we like, the, we like the collection. The judge did not choose yours, but we like the collection and would like to publish it anyway. So that was the first book. Um, and that was 90, 91, 2, or 3, 93? Early 90s. And so that was a wonderful experience. And, and then it was another decade or so before the next one was published. Um, and then before these that are published, going to be published this year. The most recent one came out in 1415 from Bookmark Press. Totally different. Those were stories, Now We Can All Go Home is a collection of stories that imagines the characters of three of Chekhov's major plays, imagines their lives after the curtain comes down. Oh, mm -hmm. gosh, what I saw a production of Three Sisters, and I thought, oh, my God, what's going to happen to these <laughs> women? Oh, she just lost her... Beyonce, what is she going to do now? And so this inspired me to, to imagine their lives afterwards. <laughs> and that was fun. You know, you're just immersing yourself into this turn-of-the-century Russian life, um, which meant I had to read over and over each play, over. Every time I was writing from a different character, I would read the play again <laughs> and again. And uh, Chekhov was a great innovator in both theater and in short fiction. I mean, people just don't realize what it, he just died too young. They don't realize what an innovator he was. Same with Catherine Mansfield. What an, she was a great admirer of Chekhov. And people don't, at the time, I don't think they fully realized how fresh and original these people were. And mm -hmm. she was, anyway. Um, so that was the latest one. So you can tell it's been a while. <laughs> And so I was working. I, I'm trying to think if I didn't, if I weren't at the time that the most recent, the previous collection was being published, or we were waiting it because there is a queue of at least 18 months between when a story collection is accepted or a book mm -hmm. and when it comes out. For the novel, it was two years. That and that's not unusual. No. 
Um, this allows them to get all their ducks in a row to make sure the copy is good. They have a cover designer. They work with their distributor in order to promote the book. And um, with the novel that's coming out in November, there is um, a lot of emphasis on self-help. You know, we are, the, the writer is expected to do a number of things to set up things, and that's fine. Um, gives you some control over it. Although for somebody as, as introverted as me, it's sort of, oh my God, you mean I have to talk to people? I mean, <laughs> or I have to go to a bookstore and promote this? So um, it's it's all a learning experience. It's all, um, all experience is valuable, as they say, or as the old Chinese expression. <laughs> um, but that, that's sort of a shortened version of the arc. You just, you keep at it. You keep, you keep, you just keep doing it. It's, um, I can't imagine not doing it. I, I think that I feel most authentically myself when I'm reading and writing. Uh, I guess you know, there's always something we all do in which we feel more, more truly ourselves, that we're being true to ourselves yeah. by doing this. And for some reason, those are the two activities that make me feel like I'm being honest about myself, and that is reading and writing. You know, and there is all, I think women especially feel like, what is it, the old, the feeling you're a fraud? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever you do, you feel like you're a fraud because you're, and I don't know why we should feel this way, but it's a, um, it's something that people deal with. Um, it's that idea of imposter syndrome. It, the imposter syndrome. Yes. That is exactly the yes. word that you're, you're not who you, you say you are or you're presenting yourself. Yes. That presentation is so much, but you know, this is so odd because it used to be that people did have a certain way of behaving that was appropriate to whatever their role in life was. Yeah. But now we're um, we're into authenticity. <laughs> well, I just have one more question for you. Sure. What would you like the listeners in the Northeast community to either know about you or know about your writing? Good question. Let me just focus on this book. I see this book as being, of all the books I have written, is one that I think is more of bearing witness to an event. Mm-hmm. It is. A, I, I think people need to pay attention to things like this, and this is what I hope that we. I kept hearing over and over, and reading, um, in this particular book, how the people of the Northeast and Japan, the world was forgetting them, mm-hmm. and their problems, their situation has not yet improved, homes had not been rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a little interesting information. There was concern by mayors throughout the little cities and large throughout that area that the central government was not sending them the money, material, work to help rebuild, but was instead focusing all that money and material to the Tokyo Olympics. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were annoyed. Yeah. They were upset. Um, and now it's a you know it's all over and done with. But they were concerned about this, and and um, people in the northeast are, of Japan were very outspoken. Yes, <laughs> not not a, quite as bowing and scraping, but, but quite outspoken. And they're concerned that the central government was not paying enough attention. Hmm. And so I feel like this book is a kind of advocacy for the people of the northeast of Japan. 
And folks, this could happen here. The east, the west coast is. There are signs in Cannon Beach, and that's where my friend Makoto was given the fishing float. There are signs along Cannon Beach about where to go in case of a tsunami, and I have seen them. Um, I have a friend who lives in Oregon, and we always go to the co coast, and you can see them. This can happen there and has. There was a small tsunami um, in the area, and in California, too. Nothing, nothing at all like what had happened there, but, you know. Um, so this is, this is what... Um, I think that I feel like this book is important to me because it enumerates a problem fictionally that um, affected people and I want them to remember this and I've done this and I feel like I'm doing this partly for my friend Makoto's sake. The book mm -hmm. is really in large measure for him and because he and his wife were very kind and set up my trip practically. So I visited with all of their friends along the coast. As far as what would people take away from my writing in general, um, I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. I think people, I think I as a writer would hope people were more interested in the writing than in me. I would rather be invisible. You know, I really would. I, I would rather just, just read the books and see if you enjoy them. And the, the book that's coming out in November is totally different. It's set in Kansas, and it's the, it's the baby on the doorstep. It's a modern updating of that old book from 1860 by George Eliot called Silas Marner. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and that's what it is. That is the, the baby, the infant on the doorstep of the bachelor who has to end up raising the child. Yes. And so that's totally, utterly different. Everything I've written pretty much has been different than what came before. And I think that's because who wants to do the same thing over and over again, yeah. you know? Genre writers can do the same thing. That's, that's what they want to do, and they're good at it. I want to learn something new, and you learn something new from, from your writing. Every time you do a project, you learn something new. But mostly I want people to read and enjoy. And uh, never mind me, just <laughs> the, the, the product. But just spend, spend it, you know, just enjoy the book. That's all. <laughs>